and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, November 16th through Sunday the 19th feature guest conductor Philippe Jordan and violin soloist Leonidas Kavakos. The program includes Modest Mozorsky's St. John's Night on the Bear Mountain, Karol Szymanowski's Violin Concerto No. 2, and after intermission, Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Karol Szymanowski's Violin Concerto No. 2, a work lasting about 20 minutes. Born the year after Bartok, four months after Stravinsky, and two years before Berg, Szymanowski was Poland's most adventuresome and gifted composer of the early 20th century. He enjoyed a childhood of privilege and culture. Of the five Szymanowski children, three became professional musicians. Yaroslav Ivaskiewicz, a poet who later worked on the libretto for Szymanowski's opera King Roger, recalled fancy costume balls at the family home for which Karol and his brother Felix wrote music. Their sister, Stasia, became an opera singer and created the role of Roxana in King Roger. Karol started composing at the dawn of the new century, beginning with piano miniatures indebted to Chopin and quickly moving on to larger works for full orchestra. He studied formally in Warsaw, where he met Archer Rubinstein, who later played his music, and then in Berlin, where he helped found the Polish Composers Publishing Company, better known as Young Poland in Music. Growing up in the seclusion of his father's estate had not made Karol timid, self-absorbed, or provincial. He was influenced mostly by foreign composers such as Wagner, Strauss, Debussy, and Scriabin. He was fascinated by ancient Greece, the Orient, Norman, Sicily, and the Arab world. As early as 1911, he wrote songs on lyrics by the Persian classic poet Havis, using the German translations by Hans Betke, who provided the Chinese text for Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde, The Song of the Earth, completed just two years earlier. Szymanowski's Third Symphony, finished the year he wrote his first violin concerto, sets poetry by the 13th-century Persian mystic Rumi. Szymanowski was well-dressed and well-traveled. In addition to the major European capitals, he visited North Africa in 1911 and again in 1914. He returned to Poland on the eve of World War I. Exempted from military service because of a childhood injury, he now turned all his energies to composition. The war years spent in isolation in a gardener's hut on the family property were his most productive. Szymanowski's musical language is one of synthesis, late romanticism, sensuous chromaticism, delicate impressionism, and polytonality all play their part. He spent the summer of 1914 in Paris, and the sound world of Debussy and Ravel still lingers over his first violin concerto written two years later. He once recalled, I shall never cease in the conviction that a true and deep understanding of French music, of its content, its form, and its further evolution, is one of the conditions for the development of our Polish music. Over the years, Szymanowski's style underwent a deeply personal evolution, leading him ultimately to embrace the ideas of Bartok and Stravinsky, and finally, near the end of his life, Polish folk music as well. Yet, throughout his career, his works sounded like no one else's. Both of Szymanowski's violin concertos, composed 17 years apart, were written for the Polish violinist Paweł Kochanski, 
When Kochonsky first appeared with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1921, the first of the two concertos, completed five years later, had not yet been premiered, and Kochonsky played Brahms here instead. Kochonsky, now Paul, not Pavel, did take up the piece giving the American premiere in 1924 in Philadelphia under Leopold Stokowski and introducing it to the Chicago Symphony four years later with Frederick Stock conducting. The two men continued to work together regularly over the years in the process developing a new style, a new mode of expression for the violin, as the composer said. In a sense, Szymanowski and Kochanski were collaborators as much as colleagues. With Szymanowski's blessing, the cadenzas in both violin concertos were composed entirely by the violinist. Szymanowski and Kochanski worked together for the last time in 1933 on the second violin concerto that is performed at this concert. Kochanski, then a member of the Juilliard faculty, was so eager to have a sequel to his violin concerto that he cut short his vacation to join Szymanowski in Poland. He gave the premiere of the new work in Warsaw that October. Kochanski died in New York in January 1934, three years before Szymanowski, his dear and unforgettable friend. This violin concerto was Szymanowski's last work. The design, like that of the first violin concerto, is truly sui generis. It recalls no standard form, and yet it is far from formless. Unlike the other prominent violin concertos of the early 20th century, from Elgars, Bartoks, Schoenbergs, and Bergs to Elliot Carter and John Adams, all of which are divided into contrasting movements, Szymanowski's is a single, continuous expanse, although here divisions are more clearly defined than in the first concerto. The cadenza, Kochanski's cadenza, falls near the center, splitting the work into halves, each of them divided into two sections of differing moods and tempos. The earthy dancing theme introduced by the violin immediately after the cadenza is derived from the folk music of the Tatra Mountains. The ending returns to the music of the opening half, though reversing the course of events, so that the concerto ends as it began, now triumphant where it was once introspective. Program notes by Philip Husher on Karol Szymanowski's Violin Concerto No. 2. And now, on to Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, scenes from pagan Russia in two parts. The performance time, around 35 minutes. In 1911, Stravinsky began the score that would create the biggest scandal in the history of music. He was already famous, just as Diaghilev had predicted during rehearsals for The Firebird. He pointed to Stravinsky and said, Mark him well. He is a man on the eve of celebrity. But... Le Sac de Planton, or the Rite of Spring, as we have come to call it, put him at the very forefront of the avant-garde and spread his name to corners of the world where news of the latest styles in French ballet rarely traveled. Although, when the score was suggested to Walt Disney for his film Fantasia, he asked, The Sac? Clearly, never having heard of Le Sacre. First, a word about the title. Stravinsky called his ballet Vesna Svyashanaya, Russian for Holy Spring. The painter, Leon Baxt, was the one who suggested Le Sac du Printemps during rehearsals. The standard English version, The Rite of Spring, first used by Diaghilev for a London revival in 1921, was quickly sanctioned by a public, 
tired of trying to get the French pronunciation right. May 29, 1913, the night the Rite of Spring opened at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées, is one of the dates historians cite as the start of the modern age, like 1907, the year Picasso painted Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, or 1922, when The Wasteland and Ulysses were published. As Pierre Boulez has written, the Rite of Spring serves as a point of reference to all who seek to establish the birth certificate of what is still called contemporary music, a kind of manifesto work somewhat in the same way and probably for the same reasons as Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon, it has not ceased to engender first polemics, then praise, and finally the necessary clarification. The premiere is engraved in all the music history textbooks, first of all because of the outrage it provoked. In time, it has become the most notorious scandal in music and one of cultural history's most cherished riots. The principal players, in addition to Stravinsky, were Sergei Diaghilev, the impresario, Pierre Monteur, the conductor, and Václav Nijinsky, the dancer who was making his debut as a choreographer. The scene has often been retold. The audience grew restless and noisy almost as soon as the music began, and when the dancing started, it erupted. I have never again been that angry, Stravinsky later wrote. The music was so familiar to me. I loved it, and I could not understand why people who had not heard it wanted to protest in advance. There were catcalls and fistfights. One fight victim called out for a dentist. According to the artist, Valentin Hugo, who was there and made the four books of drawings that helped the Joffrey Ballet reconstruct the original production in 1987, the entire theater seemed to be shaken by an earthquake. Diaghilev flipped the house lights off and on to quiet the crowd. Nijinsky, recognizing imminent disaster, stood on a chair in the wings, shouting numbers, directions, and general encouragement to his dancers. And all the while, Pierre Monteur continued conducting. He stood there apparently impervious and as nerveless as a crocodile, Stravinsky remembered. It is still almost incredible to me that he actually brought the orchestra through to the end. The spectacle of the premiere has always overshadowed the fact that at the dress rehearsal before an invited audience, which included Debussy and Ravel, and at the subsequent performances, Rite of Spring didn't cause any commotion. And most reports of opening night fail to point out that despite the revolutionary nature of Stravinsky's music, it was the dancing that provoked the audience. After the opening moments, it would have been difficult even to hear the orchestra. One literally could not, throughout the whole performance, hear the sound of music, Gertrude Stein later commented with characteristic poetic license, because after all, she wasn't actually there. As Stravinsky was fond of remembering, after the first concert performance almost a year later, the crowd cheered, and he was carried aloft through the theater and into the Place de la Trinité. It's impossible today to imagine the shock of a musical score that, like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, written just over a century earlier, has had its freshness and daring dimmed by familiarity. 
When it was played in Chicago for the first time in 1924, its notoriety had certainly preceded it, and the orchestra did everything in its power to lead audiences safely through it, including the onstage use of cue cards, lettered like movie subtitles, to announce the subdivisions of the score. Dissonant, barbaric, complex, rhythmically new, the Herald and Examiner critic reported, it crowds impressions and sensations upon the listener which, because of their complete novelty, cannot be assimilated at first hearing. The most audacious of the musical innovations are certainly rhythmic. In the augurs of spring, the famous section near the very beginning, a single massive chord repeated again and again like a fast pulse, is shot through with irregularly spaced, unpredictable accents. It was murder on Nijinsky's dancers, just as it is for listeners today who must prove their musicality by beating time. That section, at least, Stravinsky could notate in a conventional 2-4, with accents landing wherever they fell. But the final sacrificial dance was so new in its rhythmic conception that he couldn't even find a way to put it on paper at first, even though he could play it at the piano. He eventually juggled bar lines and time signatures to correspond to what his hands wanted. The meter changes in nearly every measure. It begins 3 16 2, 16, 3, 16, 3, 16, 2, 8, 2, 16, 3, 16. There are many celebrated passages. Stravinsky layers different strict ticking ostinato patterns. The orchestra sounds like a clock shop gone mad to create a tension unknown in music. There is that famous pounding chord itself, the heartbeat of the augurs of spring, a prophetic mixture of two unrelated tonalities with an F-flat chord on the bottom and an E-flat seventh chord on top. It's tempting to regard the rite of spring as an anthology of brilliant effects from the opening solo for very high bassoon quoted in all the textbooks on orchestration to the giant whoosh with which the furious final dance collapses. But it's the cumulative sweep of rhythmic energy that gives the score a life all its own. The Rite of Spring is as tight and shrewdly paced as a Hitchcock thriller. It still leaves audiences gasping almost a hundred years after it was written. A few words about the genesis of the music. Stravinsky claimed his first fleeting vision of this piece came to him in the spring of 1910 as he was finishing The Firebird. I saw in my imagination, he later recalled, a solemn pagan rite. Sage elders, seated in a circle, watched a young girl dance herself to death. They were sacrificing her to propitiate the god of spring. The scenario was planned in collaboration with the Russian painter and archaeologist Nikolai Rorich in the summer of 1910, before a note was written. Stravinsky began to compose the music in Clarence, Switzerland in the fall of 1911 at a small upright piano wedged into a room just eight feet square. It was in that room, with the piano mercifully muted for composing, that he hit upon the pounding chords of the augurs of spring. Part one was finished early in January 1912, and he played through it for Piedmonteux. Before he got very far, the conductor remembers, 
I was convinced he was raving mad. Early in June, Stravinsky persuaded Debussy to play through the forehand arrangement of the score with him at a party. It was hardly typical party music, and when they were done, one guest recalls, we were dumbfounded, overwhelmed by this hurricane which had come from the depths of the ages and which had taken life by the roots. Stravinsky completed the entire score in sketch on November 17th with an unbearable toothache. Rehearsals for the ballet lasted six months. Stravinsky uncharacteristically stayed away until the very end. Despite the dancers' difficulties with the music's uncountable rhythms, rehearsals went on without incident. Stravinsky walked into the theater on May 29th unprepared for what would soon follow. Program notes by Philip Husher on Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.